0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Jackie Cole Shapiro and I'm a professor in organizational behavior here at the LSE. I am very pleased and excited to welcome April Rennie to the LSE today. Welcome April. As a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and ranked as one of the 50 leading female futurists by Forbes, April is a change navigator. She helps individuals and organizations rethink their relationship with change, uncertainty in a world of flux. Today, I have the opportunity of having a conversation with April about her new book, which offers a bento box of superpowers. And I emphasize superpowers because it's not too often you hear the term superpowers, except from my five year old niece, uh, to help develop a flux mindset, which means that individuals and organizations are much. Um, better equipped to deal with surfing the waves of change. April's book is available to purchase via the event listing. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag um, for today's event is hashtag LSE Flux. The online event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast, assuming no technical difficulties. You will have the opportunity of posing questions to April. Um, To submit your questions, please put them in the Q&A feature um, at the bottom of your screen. Um, I will get the questions, and I plan to ask April as many questions as possible. Please give your name and affiliation. And we're particularly interested in hearing from uh, our students and alumni. So with the introduction out of the way, what I want to do is I want to start by asking you a general question, April, about your motivation for writing Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. What was your inspiration?
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Jackie, and thank you to the entire LSE and the team that brought today together. I am so excited, just delighted to be here with all of you. So just a a wholehearted thank you and welcome and and let's dive into conversation. So it is interesting. Um, I have to admit a lot of people have been saying, oh, you wrote a book about 2020. You wrote a book about the pandemic, today's world in flux. And I always have to stop and say, no, I didn't. I mean, the last year and a half has been incredible acceleration and validation of my ideas, but this is not a book about any one kind of change or any one year. And I like to say that I've been actively writing it. It took three solid years to write it, but it's more like three decades in the making in terms of what inspired me. And ultimately it was it was this process of connecting a bunch of different dots and layering a bunch of different things that I was seeing and researching and experiencing and learning et cetera, et cetera. And getting to this point where I looked at this and I said, I have a fresh perspective on what's going on, but also as I look to the future, I'm concerned about the fact that there is more, not less, flux and change and uncertainty. So if I go back just in my history briefly, in terms of why I wrote this book, I like to say that I basically bring three different lenses to change and our relationship, humans' relationships to change and uncertainty. And the first is that of a futurist. So for the past several years, I've been known as a futurist where I'm helping companies largely understand what's on the horizon and how do they fit in. And that's both individuals as well as organizations. And in that context, I've learned that every single organization on the planet struggles with change way, right? Not necessarily in the same way, but oh my goodness, there is so much room for improvement. Um, The second perspective or lens that I bring is global. So my entire career has been international. Um, I've been to more than 100 countries, but I've worked in more than 50. And that's just given me an incredibly wide exposure to different cultures and societies and ways of living and being and thinking. And what that has taught me is that every single culture and society on the planet also struggles with change, but also has developed different ways, unique ways of seeing it, talking about it, thinking about it, and concepts and rituals around it. And and the point here is that there's just so much we can learn from one another. So the book also kind of connects those dots. And last but not least, I like to say my third lens, uh, which goes back farthest in my history, is just my very human and lived experience with change and uncertainty. And I like to say that my my baptism or my entry into flux happened more than 25 years ago uh, when I was in college. So there's great resonance with people who are in their studies. Um, But when I was 20, both of my parents died in a car accident while I was at university. And that was the biggest flux you can imagine. In an instant, every aspect of my life and my future changed. And I, I had to figure out, like, how do I rebuild my family? And what do I do about my grief and anxiety? And what about my career? And all of this, you know, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Now, back then, I never would have imagined that I would write a book about this someday. But that's the piece that I know that from that point forward, I started peeling back the layers of my relationship to change, which led me to realize how much work I needed to do. But then in that process, I also started looking around and realizing how many people on this planet in their own ways struggle with change and how we can all improve how we show up for ourselves and for others every single day by better understanding and strengthening our relationship to change and then bring it back to today as we think about what we've experienced over the last year and a half. I think of it both as a wake-up call, for sure. We, we realize how hard change can be, particularly the change we can't control, right? The change that blindsides you, the change that goes against your expectations and it disrupts your plans. But actually, it's not just a wake-up, it's also a warm-up. Because I firmly believe that moving forward, there is more of this kind of change and uncertainty. Not necessarily a pandemic. I mean, we do know that be another one at some point. The hope is it's not for a while and it's not particularly bad, but there's a lot of other kinds of change. So I would encourage everyone tuning in today, you know, think about change in your personal life, in your professional life, all of these different kinds of flux that we haven't fully wrapped our arms around. There's more, not less of that ahead. And so given that, Um, it requires us, but it also invites us to reshape and rethink how we relate to change again, every single day, every kind of change, um, which is really hard for a lot of people to do. But there's actually a hugely, you know, the message of the book is very uplifting because it's almost as though we've been given the greatest opportunity of our lives right now to upgrade um, how we think about and ultimately relate to change.
0: Thanks, April. So I'm going to. um, I've had the opportunity of reading your book. Um, So I'm going to take the opportunity of delving into a couple of chapters. But before I do that, it might be worthwhile to, to ask you to talk about what is flux and what is the flux mindset?
1: Yeah. Great starting question. And and it kind of sets a foundation for for the rest of our conversation, as well as, again, I'm excited to hear the the questions from the audience as well, so don't be shy. Um, So the word flux, I love to start here. It is both a noun and a verb. So as a noun, which is how most people know it, it means continuous change, right? But flux is also a verb. And to flux means to learn how to become fluid. And I love that because the world is in flux and we all need to learn how to flux. And so part of this, and really what the book is about is how do we think about and and relate to change and where do our relationships to change come from, right? And there's another concept in this, which I call our scripts. And our scripts are one thing I've learned in 25 plus years of researching and again, peeling back the layers of this onion, is that our relationship to change, and here I mean What kinds of changes do you love? What do you hate? What do you struggle with? What excites you? What triggers you? All of that. Our relationships to change begin young, right? And they're part of what I call our scripts, which is these are the narratives and norms and stories that we tell and we absorb and we learn about, about the world that we live in and our place in it. And it includes our stories about change. So I would encourage everybody, just pause for a moment and think about it. Growing up, were you taught to fear change or to embrace it? Were you taught that uncertainty is dangerous or that it's an adventure for your curiosity? Were you told that you make plans and then they don't work out? Was that just the way life goes sometimes? Or were you a failure, right? These All of these things factor into how we think about and relate to change also as adults. And the challenge we face today is that for many people, and again, you have a script, I have a script, everyone has a script. They're all different because we have different life experiences. I find, and it's not that one is better or worse, none of that. Every script has strengths and weaknesses. (laughs) Every script that I come across today, there is some aspect of it that is not, it is not fit for a world in flux. So a lot of what we've been taught about the world and our place in it assumes a kind of neat, tidy, orderly, predictable world that humans have the ability to control. (laughs) I would say that nothing is further from the truth today, and we can talk about the role of technology and all the rest. Um, You know, humans, no one can control the future. We can control how we respond, you know, that sort of thing. So in any case, there's this great need to write a new script, as I like to call it. And that means taking a hard look at what are the stories and narratives that you have absorbed about change that really aren't serving you well today and that really aren't fit for this world in flux and so in order to write this new script what we talk about next is this notion of a flux mindset it requires opening a flux mindset which first step is is that opening a flux mindset which is the ability the state of mind to see all change so whether that's good good or bad change whether it's expected or unexpected but a Especially the hard stuff, especially the change you really wish hadn't happened. It's the ability to see every single change as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to improve. Um, Another way I put it is it's the ability to lean into uncertainty, precisely because you're not trying to make it something different. And this is hard for most humans to do, including myself for most of my life, right? Um, But that's what flux is. That's what the flux mindset is. And then when you have a flux mindset open, you're able to use that to harness and develop the um, eight flux superpowers.
0: So I'm going to begin with chapter one, which has a very attention grabbing title and it's called Run Slower. And I'm sure the audience is thinking, who wants to run slower? Uh, But in this chapter, you talk about how, you know, society and we as individuals are always on. Uh, We're running a race um, as fast as we can through our own expectations of always doing and getting things done. And so the analogy is we're on a treadmill that's gathering pace and you make the case in the chapter that we need to slow down. We need to slow down, to be present, to pause, to think and to act as late as possible. So I like the emphasis on the thoughtful action versus the quick action, assuming you're not running out of your house that's on fire. But this chapter makes the case that in order to have authentic um, relationships, conversations, if we're to be creative, running fast is not the way to, to do this yet. We're all here trying to get to the top of our profession, trying to cross things off our to-do list. And you say, if we want to flourish, we need to slow down. So April, make your case to us for taking the left turn and going against the grain and starting to run slower.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jackie. Let's let's just go for it. (laughs) Um, And this is a good point to note that each of the eight flux superpowers is counterintuitive in some way. And some would even say contrarian. I am very much, I'm going sometimes against the grain of what society tells us. I'm going against what might be in your script, but here's the hook. Each of these eight flux superpowers is far more fit for a world and a future in flux. And in fact, they require us to reassess and renegotiate our, our views on, t- on um, change and uncertainty, but also what we think of as a weakness and a strength. Because what it turns out, we could come back to this if you'd like, it turns out that a weak, things we consider a strength or an asset in a neat, tidy, predictable world, the one I was talking about earlier, can actually be weaknesses or liabilities in a world that's constantly changing and vice versa. And this plays out in terms of how we think about success and leadership. And just as one example, and maybe we'll turn back to this in a little bit, um, the number one leadership skill needed today, survey after survey, is comfort with ambiguity. Now, that is not typically how we think about a great leader. We assume a great leader has certainty. This is the opposite of that. But that's what we need. That's what today's world demands. And that's what the future demands. So I bring this up because I like to ask people, like I always, for most people, Um, of the eight flux superpowers, there are usually at least a couple that they're really intrigued by, like, ooh, tell me more. And there are at least a couple where it makes them uncomfortable. It rubs them the wrong way. They're like, this is not what I was taught. And I love saying to people, pay attention to that. It's not a criticism. It's not good or bad. It's a signal of where where your relationship to change may need a little bit of attention. And it's an opportunity to learn more. So back to this run slower, this superpower says that in an ever faster paced world, your key to success and well-being is to slow your own pace. And here we can talk about this from the perspective of um, professional development or personal growth. I ultimately believe that everything boils down to your own personal self-awareness. So this is growth and, and professional development from the inside out. So think about it for a moment, not just what is changing, how much is changing, right? Like everything's changing. We've got work changes and schedule changes and family changes and public health changes and travel changes. Like there's just relentless change, right? It's not just what is changing though. It's also how fast things are changing. And the way I like to say this is that the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today. And yet. It is likely to never again be this slow. So pause for a moment. Just let that sink in. It's kind of exciting and it's kind of terrifying, right? Because think about what our scripts typically tell us. They say that when the pace of change quickens, you're supposed to run faster and just keep up, right? And that's where this superpower is venturing to say wrong. Right. So I look at this and I say, we already know today that the pace of change is increasing and many of us are already running as fast as we can, probably faster. Right. Anyone I mean, the superpower, it's all about burnout and exhaustion and anxiety, but it's also about making wiser decisions. So back to the burnout and anxiety piece, we're already running as fast as we can. Yet think about what society is telling us. It's saying that no matter how fast we're running today, we should, because the pace of change is increasing, we should run faster tomorrow and faster next week, and faster next month and faster next year, and all of this effectively for the rest of our lives, right? Now, the futurist in me, but also the human in me, is like, hold on, time out, like what kind of life is that? And this is not about climbing corporate ladders, we can apply it. This is just about life, not work life balance. Life is the unit. What kind of life is that? If you know already today you're going to be running faster or asked to run faster, faster, faster every single day. So, from where I stand, this focus on running ever faster leads at best to burnout and exhaustion. But worse, and this is my real concern and my real, you know, the the real crux behind um, picking this superpower is that it leads to none of us reaching our full potential, right? And that's not just you or me. That's everyone in your life who is on this kind of treadmill. Now, side note, but an important one. Note that I did not say stop. I did not say do nothing. I did not say be lazy. I said run, but do so at a sustainable pace, right? And just one final piece I'll mention here, and, and you brought this up, um, but to make my full case, you know, it's not just burnout and anxiety, although that is the epidemic of so much of what we're living in today. And I think especially amongst young people, although caveat, I tell 20 somethings run slower and it's like, what are you talking about? This is the fastest I can run in my life. So there is an element that you will learn with time and age and experience But it is something that when I see teenagers who are already exhausted and anxious and worried about their future, I know there's a role for this superpower at all ages. But back to this whole notion, it's not just burnout and anxiety. Um, Think about this from the perspective of leadership, creativity, innovation, inclusion, lots of big picture issues. I would ask everyone tuning in, think for a moment, when do you have new ideas, like really new ideas? When do you notice new things? When do you make your best decisions? When do you feel most alive, right? I would argue that for all of these kinds of questions, your answer is not when you're running fast, right? Now, when so when we run fast, faster, 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 we're on this treadmill. We're consuming massive amounts of information. We're just trying to get through the day. What we do is we actually fail to see what really matters. And at an extreme, when we're running ever faster, 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 we actually genuinely run the risk of running straight past life itself. So um, that is how I will make my case. <laughs> and I would love to debate or hear what you know the audience thinks and so forth, but um, the running ever faster. Also, I should just put a, a finer point on this. There are times in life where running fast and sprinting as fast as you can, even if it's exhausting, is absolutely not just okay, it should be celebrated. And I like to use the example of developing vaccines, right? Sprint, run as fast as you can for as long as you can to develop a vaccine for global public health. You got to put the run slower aside. But the key is that's not a forever quest. We can't keep running faster just as the norm. Otherwise, we just, we, we flare out. We, we burn out and we don't, we fail to bring our best, um, both to ourselves, but also our contributions to society.
0: So April, just a follow-up question. So based on what you said, then it's, this is the judgment call, right? That we as individuals need to make in terms of, when we should run fast and when we should run slow so to what extent can you help us you know what kind of strategies or questions should we ask ourselves in terms of you know that judgment as to whether we need to run fast or run at a much slower pace
1: yeah great question so much of this is not just self-awareness, but really getting clear and a flux mindset goes into this deeper in the book as well, you know, your values and your priorities. But if we go back to our scripts, I routinely ask people, like most of us haven't thought about what our script is. We're just sort of living life. And so what does my script actually say, what are those narratives and norms and expectations and where did they come from? And why I say this is because in my experience, and again, over many, many, many years, I find that a lot of people are actually living scripts that they did not write themselves. They're living someone else's view of what their life is supposed to look like. And then they go, is this really what I want? Is this what's best for me? Does this make me not just happy? Does this make me fulfilled? Is this the best use of my time? And you have people, it's a sort of awakening of like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I running so fast? Now, it's interesting because today, and back to the whole, you know, the joke that I couldn't have scripted, um, I couldn't predict the world that my book was going to enter, but I couldn't have picked a better time for this book to come out. um, You look at something like The Great Resignation. I would argue that that is a massive uh, example, indication, of how many people, we're, we're having this glimmer into how many people are like, I've been running too fast for too long, but I've also realized, why am I running? Am I doing this for myself, my loved ones, or am I doing this because somehow society has convinced me that this is what matters? And this, you know, this filters from climbing the corporate ladder, I'm not saying corporate ladders are bad or good. They're, corporate ladders are one option to build your career. They're not the holy grail. But for a lot of people, they're saying, I don't actually want to be on that ladder. I I don't think that that's not my vision of the future. Or, for example, that the more money you have, the bigger your bank account, the more valuable you are to society. I'm not going to say that's good or bad. I'm just going to say money is one metric that we as humans have developed simply to store value. But no one's value to society is contingent on this, you know, this thing called money your value is as a human being. Can we harness that? And in order to do that, you need to get clear on how am I going to spend, You know, the most finite precious on the planet is, is our time, right? And so that's where run faster and this notion of peace and velocity all kind of starts to, it starts to basically like, like, like implode almost as it collides together. So that's you know, usually where I start this conversation is saying, why are you running fast? Who, who is behind this? When did that need to run faster begin? You know, and it asks you also to start going back, telling some stories, getting clear on, you know, relationships and norms and all of that. And again, me and the whole book, it's not to judge. There's no judgment in this. It's an exploration. It's a discovery of what parts of you and your relationship to change might need some attention? What, How could you show up better for yourself and for others? Because what, what concerns me and what really saddens me is how many people feel like life is cutting them short because of the exhaustion and anxiety that they feel as they're on this treadmill. And yet a lot of people can't quite figure out when they got on this treadmill <laughs> or how did this happen? And before long, you're on it and you're stuck on it. And so part of this is helping people um, figure out, you know, it's not a bad thing to be on a treadmill, but it needs to be a treadmill that you enjoy and that you can, again, sustain, be on at a pace that you can sustain for life.
0: Uh, April, delving into chapter six, which is create your portfolio career. And I know we've got students in the audience. And so this one is particularly relevant as they're thinking about their career. That said, for, you know, those in the audience that have careers, um, this is also quite fascinating. Because if we think about careers as individual journeys with twists and turns and scenic stops, you actually mention in your book that you got a lot of flack for your unconventional resume. um, And you, you kind of discuss How we need to reorient ourselves from away from thinking of careers as a linear process to thinking about them as a portfolio. So I have two questions for you: one, how to build a portfolio career, but two, and maybe as important, what are the key messages for leaders in organizations? Because if a portfolio career is going to gain traction, uh, we need leaders in organizations to legitimate having um, a portfolio career as a purposeful career approach. And they also need to reap the benefits of employees that they know are only going to stay with the organization for a finite period of time.
1: Yes, love this. We could have spent all our just on this one question. Actually, caveat, I think uh, we talked about this before, we could have spent all hour on any one of the eight flux superpowers. So I'll do my best to give this overview. Um, but again, there might be questions like like we can dig into it more with the audience. Um, so we need to place this against the context of the future of work, uh, which I've been working on for the better part of a decade. Um, yes, the last 18 months have had lots of activity, and it's now a term that a lot of people put out there. But basically, where is the workforce workplace heading? And so, um, against this backdrop, what's interesting when we think about, again, most people's scripts, what were most of us taught? Study hard, get good grades, go to university if you can, track into a job, do said job for a very long time, climb the corporate ladder, retire like linear study, work, retire. Now, That script, that is a total script, that still exists, and there's nothing, it's not good or bad, it just is, it's a script, Um, it's still totally valid, Um, but it's not working for a lot of people, and a lot of people are saying, I don't really want that linear path or career, Um, a lot of people are on that ladder saying, this isn't working for me, this is not what I expected, also though, there has never been in the history of humanity there has never been more different ways to earn income, create a livelihood and have a professional identity, right? So we're looking at a much bigger menu of options of which linear career path, climb the ladder is one, but not the only one. And so this superpower is really um, about your professional identity and your career development and how do you have a professional identity and career that is fit for a future of work that is in flux? Because here, not only do we have lots more opportunities for ways to earn income, um, we have an explosive rise of independent talent. So not just freelance, There's freelance is one version, but independent professionals, highly skilled, highly credentialed people who are saying, I don't want to work for the man anymore. I don't want to work for a large corporation. I want to have more flexibility, spend more time with my family, that sort of thing. We have obviously remote work, which used to be a novelty and now it's like accepted so that's great. We have automation, which is going to disrupt massive amounts. Now eliminate a non-trivial number of jobs, but transform and change all jobs in some way in terms of how we use automation, artificial intelligence, and so forth. So you begin in a career today, There is very little, very little guarantee. I would say zero guarantee. Very little chance that you're going to do said job for X number of years. That your sector is even going to exist in 10 years. That your role, you know. So how do you prepare for that? So that brings us to this portfolio career and the superpower. Basically, says that to thrive in a future of work in flux, you need to see and view and create your career, less as a singular path to pursue, so the study, work, retire, and more as a portfolio to curate, as an artist or investor would. And so here, think about a portfolio. For some people, they like the idea of an artist. What does an artist have in their portfolio? Their best works of art, the things they're best at doing. What does an investor have in their portfolio? A diversified portfolio of investments designed to mitigate risk. So I bring this up because depending on what you like to do, some concept of this portfolio um, is going to resonate with you. Your portfolio is far more than your resume. So this is funny. I, I use LinkedIn a lot. LinkedIn is a great tool. LinkedIn has transformed resumes, but LinkedIn is still quite linear in that it expects you to have, you know, where'd you go to school? What jobs have you had? What titles? And you kind of build it in a linear manner. That's fine. A portfolio is multidimensional. A portfolio includes any and all skills, roles, contributions, you name it, that you have that can help you earn income and add value to society. So one of my favorite examples, parenting skills, right? Parenting skills, not only are they not typically on resumes, if you take time out to parent, then you have a career gap that you have to explain when you go back to the workforce. A portfolio career says that that entire situation doesn't make sense. Parenting skills, if you tell me that you are a parent of one child or five children, whatever, you have superpowers, you have skills around time management, around handling difficult personalities, around project management, right? Parenting skills are enormously valuable in the workplace. And yet, They're nowhere to be found in a career path. They're actually stigmatized sometimes. So it's this holistic thinking about what is in your portfolio. Now, you asked, how do you build one? What I love to remind people, and so in the chapter, uh, in the book, like there's a five-step process that goes beyond what we have time for today. What I want to tell people most importantly is that every person already has a portfolio. You may just not know it. So your portfolio includes, again, all of the skills, capabilities, roles, whether or not you had a title, whether or not you were paid for it, all the things you care about, even if people say they're a little bit goofy or not related to a job, like all of it is part of your portfolio. And then what your goal is to do is to connect those dots and develop what I call a portfolio narrative. Why having all of these different skills and abilities, even if they come from different sectors, Makes you actually a better qualified candidate for a job. In fairness, their jobs are still, you know, still part of the workforce, of course. But also it helps you very much um, create your own venture, tackle opportunities you might not have thought you were qualified for, see your professional development much more holistically and be much more um, not just expectant, but excited about the amount of change that is likely going to happen during your career. Now, your second question about organizations—I mean, there's a clear kind of individual push here, which is, are you want to take responsibility? I should also mention um, there's a piece here around the individual piece. Not only that you have, um, not only that you already have a portfolio, but also, um, and I—I I hesitate here because it's going to sound really blunt, but I have to remind people that if you have a job that someone else gave you. Even if you love your job, even if you're really good at it, even if you'd love to do it for the rest of your life, if someone else gave you that job, there is always the risk that that job can be taken away beyond the control of any one person, right? And that's making a lot of people anxious. And so what I like to say is that not only does everyone have a portfolio, you just need to get clear on what yours is and start curating it. Your portfolio, no one can ever take it from you. It is yours, you are responsible for it, but it is there's nothing that can separate you from your portfolio. Now that means you're gonna need to adapt and it's gonna grow and evolve, but that's what it's designed to do for you as a unique individual. So on the organizational side, um, I actually get people often asking me, they, they, they learn about a portfolio career, and then they're like, wait, are you telling me to quit my job? I'm <laughs> like, no, no, that's not it at all. And HR, I do a lot of work with um, HR departments and HR organizations and associations. Here's the counterintuitive bit as well. If you want to attract and engage top talent over time, you want to help all talent, and I use that term specifically, that includes employees, that includes independent professionals, you want to help all talent create and curate their portfolios too. Now, HR will say, wait, it sounds like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nurture them and then they're going to leave. And like, not quite. Think about, and again, put this in the context of the great resignation. There's a big difference between why is someone leaving their job? Why are they moving or shifting organizations? Um, All organizations will attract talent and lose talent over time. It's just any organism. That's what happens. The question you have to ask is why? Is someone leaving your organization because they have learned that their true north and their true passion is to go do this other thing that they are, it will be maximizing their potential and their contribution to society. That's what they have to go do. If that's why they're leaving their, your organization, you should be thrilled. There's no better compliment. There's no better reason to lose somebody. Are they leaving your organization because they're fed up? They've had it. They're exhausted. You're not going to get that talent ever back. That's a very different kind of reason for why someone's leaving. So you go back to this and you say, yeah, you're going to lose some talent. Make sure you're losing them for the right reasons. And here's the hook. If you help them create their portfolios, which also sees your talent as whole human beings, not just as cogs and wheels or, you know, a a dot on an organizational chart, when you see them as whole human beings, they're much more likely to stay. So the portfolio career is actually a key essential component of HR strategy and HR design moving forward. So I know I've just said quite a lot, but there's a lot to dig into here, both individually and organizationally.
0: We're, we're getting, April, we're getting some questions from the audience, and I want to kind of interrupt things and, yes. and ask the, the questions. The first one is from Dali Borca, and basically they're asking, shouldn't business leaders be more flexible to integrating portfolio candidates?
1: Mm absolutely yes so i love that you bring up this question because you're and you're calling out a tension that we currently face which is individuals and employers organizations alike i think there is broad agreement that the way we have structured work for the last several decades at least isn't working right like employers will admit this they'll say yeah there's a lot we need to be doing Right, and workers obviously are saying there's a lot that needs to change, hence they're leaving. Organizations, HR departments across the board, recognize the benefits and the advantages of diverse talent. And that means diversity on all metrics, including the life experiences, the sectors you've worked in. They are hungry, hungry to... Um, hire, to retain, to attract that kind of diversity. And yet I hear it time and again, you go through the interview process. The whole thing says, you know, we want to hire diverse talent. But again, they say applications from all over are welcome. And then I guess the hiring process and they, they hire the person with 20 years experience in that one particular vertical, so siloed, so linear, so not what they pitched. Obviously there's a reputational risk there because they're saying one thing and doing another. But if you talk to the HR departments and leads, they say we we need to redesign our system. We got the outcome we didn't actually want, but we're stuck in this straitjacket. So a couple things that come up here. One is the incredible opportunity for HR design that is I would say we're in very early stages for organizations to be redesigning and that's not just hiring processes that's performance reviews that's a lot of different stuff even job job descriptions right but at the same time this is where the responsibility or the opportunity also falls to the individual i mentioned that that uh, portfolio narrative previously if you have a portfolio and again the chapter goes into this more but if you if you have a portfolio that's awesome But presenting a portfolio in a job interview may easily confuse the person who's interviewing you. Or they might say, in this, my case was always your resume makes no sense. It looks like you can't focus on anything. You look like a dilettante because I wasn't doing the single track. And this was in my 20s. And it was so painful to get this feedback. But I knew that I was trying to build a career that wasn't about one vertical. It was about going here and going here and then. The the quote that I like to to, to bring up here is, uh, it's actually by Jerry Garcia, but the quote is, don't be the best, be the only, which means, so, and I know some of the people joining today, I'm a lawyer, some of my legal friends might be here. I am not the best lawyer in the world. I'm a decent lawyer, but I'm not the best lawyer. Um, I have my degree in finance and I did work in global development. I am not the best banker out there, but I speak the language of finance. I speak some foreign languages. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm like, I've got this portfolio of different things. Um, I'm not necessarily the best in any of those, but I may well be the only person who can do all of these things. And that's the kind of value that the future of work demands. So back though to the question, you have to be able to tell the stories, the narratives about what's in your portfolio. And sort of, I think of it as translation. You speak a bunch of different languages, thanks to all these different experiences. You have to translate that for your interviewer so that they understand why this makes you so like exponentially better qualified often than the siloed candidate. If you can do that, it's a game changer, but also... You have to kind of start that conversation because oftentimes interviewers they want to go there, but they've been given this script, and so that's a key piece of it. But there is also this, um, this what would I call it? It's a tension, but it's an emerging um, shift that is happening within HR to redesign some of those, um, you know, intake policies, et cetera, et cetera.
0: April, backtracking a little, um, yeah. India Porter from King's College London is an undergraduate awesome. and she's very intrigued with the idea of running slower. But she does say, however, as an undergraduate student, I struggle to understand how I can achieve a slower pace when we have to be doing a hundred things at once and constantly have to be looking to the future. Are there any self-practices you recommend to be slow in a fast-paced university setting?
1: Oh, I love this. Thank you, India. This is a wonderful question. And it also prompts a couple of the other superpowers. Um, so I'm going to surface some of these because, um, and, and Jackie, you know this, but uh, each of the eight superpowers is independent. It stands on its own. It is valid, you know, and it can be practiced on its own as well. However, each of the superpowers also enhances the other ones. So as you learn one, you get better at another, or you are able to see and understand one a little bit better. As you get better at that one, you, you, you end up making your way throughout all eight But I do always like to remind people, should you decide to pick up the book, which would be awesome, but no pressure, um, I always say read the introduction first, but then you can read these chapters in any order you want. It is a menu, not a syllabus. So you could read chapter eight and then chapter four. This goes back to what I was saying earlier around the superpowers. Follow the ones that pique your curiosity. Follow the ones that your, your inner voice, without you thinking about it, is like, ooh, that one right? So back to running slower. Now, the easy way to put this is that when we're running ever fast, so I totally get there are hundred things to do in any given day. And that's kind of what we're told. Again, who is asking you to do these 100 things? And do you really need to be doing all 100 of them? This is all in your script. Now, I do think as a college student, You're asked to do more than is humanly realistic. But I would still argue of those 100 things, why are you doing them? This, it's one of the, I'm doing it because it's the information, I'm being bombarded with information every day and I assume that it's all equally valid and it's all equally urgent and it's all equally up to me to do. That's not the case. The challenge is that when we're running ever faster, our brain actually gets hijacked to believe that everything coming at us is a pouncing tiger. No, there's, there's neuroscience behind this, but our brains get hijacked. What we need to do, and this is about the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system and all the rest, but coming back to when we learn to run slower, we learn, and even imagine the difference between walking and jogging and running. When you're walking compared to, to running at a sprint, you start noticing different things. You start seeing what's around you. Literally and figuratively, you start seeing what really matters. And then you discover, "Oh, of all those 100 things I think I need to do, there are actually only five of them matter. I should start with those five things." And then you start practicing that grooving that, and pretty soon a bunch of those things start going away or just evolving. Now, there are lots of different, um, there's sort of the the daily hacks, the daily practices around running slower, Um, by far my favorite one, and and I go into several of them in the book, and and there's a kind of, um, it's a kind of guidebook to have you test certain things, try certain things, because not everyone's going to, uh, not everything's going to appeal to everyone in the same way, so there's, again, a kind of menu, Um, but of all, of all of the different Um, hacks around running slower. My favorite one is actually quite simple, and it's simply your breath. So your breath is the most accessible, essential aspect of our lives. I mean, there's, there's nothing we can live without for less time than breath, but it's also how you learn to slow down. And the easiest way to put this is that, again, science, but also lived experience, it takes an average of 10 deep, long breaths to reset your inner rhythm, to actually slow down. That takes between one and two minutes. I would suggest that you start your day with breath work. You do it in the morning. You do it at your chair. You do it in the subway, in the tube. You do it when you're waiting for traffic. You do it in between classes. It's very accessible. It costs nothing. You can do it anywhere. And that, even starting with deep breathing, it sounds a little bit, not woo-woo perhaps, but too simple. The power is in its simplicity. That's where I like to start. But then we get into things like, if you keep a to-do list, start a not to-do list as well. People love that. I have a to-do list and a not to-do list, and they, I run them in tandem. Having a not-to-do list, super helpful at actually slowing down and removing a bunch of stuff from my to-do list. But again, this goes back to our scripts and why do I think I need to be doing something? What could I let go of? Um, Those are a couple of examples. I'll just give a quick shout out here. This is quite fun. Back to what I was saying about the different cultures around the world. Um, They really start to kick in here because not every country, not every place on the planet is quite so obsessed with running faster. Um, The UK, pretty good. The US, off the charts. Um, But in some countries, one of my favorite examples in this regard is in the Netherlands, so in the Netherlands, they have this concept called Nixon. N i k s e n. Nixon is literally means do nothing. It is a culturally accepted and celebrated concept that acknowledges the importance of slowing down. The point is not to um, not to do nothing in like a giving up way, but it's an acknowledgement of the kind of growth that can come only with rest. And so interestingly, the Dutch are one of the most productive societies on the planet. And for them, Nixon slowing down, doing nothing is essential actually to their overall productivity. And that plays out again and again that we can go faster. If, if your goal is to go faster, we can actually go faster by slowing down. And it's, again, it's counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense when you really dig in.
0: Uh, April, I have another question from Jack, who's on the LSE staff. Um, How does one rewrite the script they have written about themselves if it has become
1: hardwired? Mm. Oh, I would say that it has become hardwired. (laughs) Like That's what we all get to do. So uh, great question, Jack. And that is the ultimate goal of the book to help you rewrite your script. Now, it doesn't happen, certainly doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. And I would argue that insofar, so the flux superpowers, it's been quite interesting where people say, oh, you wrote a book about flux and these flux superpowers, you must've mastered them all, right? You must've figured this all out. And I'm sitting here going like, no, I'm, I'm exhibit A for all of these things. Now, yes, I have learned to strengthen and improve each of these superpowers in the, in the course of identifying them and digging into them. But this is 25 years plus that I've been at this now. And I'll be the first to tell you that improving your relationship to change is a lifelong quest. It is a, but it's also something you can practice and improve daily. So my superpowers are better than they were, that's for sure. But I still have lots of ways that I need to improve as well. And in that, this goes back to the script, I will be writing my script for the rest of my life. Every This is a lifelong journey because think about change. We know that more change is around the corner. Sometimes knowing that freaks us out. But just as change is going to continue to um, hit us and surprise us and delight us and bombard us and all the rest. So too, your script, think of it as an emerging living organism of sorts. But back to your question, a lot of our scripts have, have very much become hardwired. That's, that's part of the biggest challenge. That's, that's part of what, what drove me, what led me to write this book is because the challenge, when our script is hardwired, but it's not fit for the world we live in, we're looking at one of a couple scenarios. One is at some point, change is going to hit you in a way that you break your script. You've known that it doesn't work for a while, but then all of a sudden your back's against the wall, something really big changes. And that's painful. That's traumatic. I'm trying to help avoid that kind of outcome, which means taking a hard look at your relationship to change when things are not necessarily good, but, but at every point in your life and understanding, I mean, there's a lot, just because something is hardwired doesn't mean, I mean, it's funny, there are sort of laws of gravity. There's a few things in life that like you can predict with a certain amount of certainty, right? You you can't over, you can't try to fight gravity. It is what it is. (laughs) You can't try to, you know, make, um, Yeah, a lot of it being in sort of science and engineering of two plus two is going to equal four. But when it comes to the human mind and mindset malleability, we've hardwired some things, but humans humans are incredibly adaptable. Now, sometimes we're adaptable when we're forced to be, and that's typically the painful one. But we're also very adaptable when we opt in to getting to know ourselves better. And so unraveling some of the hardwiring comes naturally when you're able to do some of the self-awareness work. And I will say that that's the style in which I wrote the book is very much as a kind of a a guidebook. And Jackie knows, you know, there are questions and exercises and testing out, it's like trying on different clothes. Test out this, try that. How does it feel? How does it fit? And again, it's not good or bad. It's just getting to know yourself. And as you do that, some of the hard wiring some of the hardwiring naturally begins to unwind and some of it simply becomes more present where you go, oh, wow, well, that's really what I need to work on. And then some, to some degree in the book, there are ways to do that um, and then suggestions for what to do otherwise. It's a wonderful question, though. Thank you.
0: So, April, just one question I can't resist. Mm-hmm. Chapter five, yes. know you're enough. Um, and this is a fascinating chapter because you write about the economics of more consumerism. We want more, you know. So, Western society has been kind of driven by excess. You know, we wanted, we want more and we want it now. Um, and it raises a question, and you ask it, you ask it in the chat, in the chapter about your legacy, but you that. That and the wonderful quote you have in a different chapter from Jane Goodall, what you do makes a difference. You need to decide what difference you want to make. That's a very powerful quote in terms of getting you to stop, pause, and think.
1: Yeah. Um, And I'm also reminded with India's question earlier where I said, oh, it bleeds into a couple other superpowers and I didn't go into those superpowers. One of them was the fifth one, know you're enough. So we get to do that now. Um, The other one is the second superpower, see what's invisible. So I just want to running slower, seeing what's invisible and knowing you're enough those tend to run in similar circles. So um, know you're enough though, this, I'm really happy to talk about this today, particularly with this crowd where there are a lot of young people. Um, This tends to be one of the most popular, the most sticky, um, also the most empowering. So this notion of knowing you're enough, it really does dig into our obsession with more and our quest for true happiness, if you will. So the punchline here is that we live in a society that is driven by more. And again, I'm gonna guess, gonna venture to say that many of the people here today were in your script, it says more is better. And I'm not gonna say that's good or bad, it's just more is better, okay. Um, The challenge that we face is that today we are obsessed with more and that's not just more money or more power. That is more clicks, more followers, more likes, more love, more clothes, more everything, right? More, 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 more. Here's the hook. There's a very simple way to put this. When we are always after more, we will never, and I mean never, have enough. We will never find enough. We will never do enough. Or worst of all, we will never feel like we are enough, that we will be enough. We remain stuck in a cycle that keeps us mostly miserable. But here's the hook. When you know you're enough, and to be clear, people ask me if this is a typo, it's Y-O-U-R. So like knowing you're enough, your point of sufficiency and balance and harmony, which is not too much and not too little. It includes, though, knowing that you are enough, just as you are. When you know you're enough, you will immediately begin to see abundance. And there's so much more we could dive into here, but I will say I'm deeply concerned by the number of young people who, by the time they're at university, will already self-report to me that they feel like they will never have or do or earn or be enough. And I want to just reiterate here, we don't have much time left, but I want to reiterate that you are, every, every person on the planet, you are enough enough just as you are, and you actually always have been ever since the moment you were born. We are living in a society where this, again, the script is you're not enough, but you will be if you buy this product or that service, or I will be happy. And I encourage people to think about this. I will be happy when I will be successful when, and that when implies that you're not happy or successful now, but you need more of something to get there. And I want to encourage all of us to say, hang on a minute. If you know you're enough, you can be happy right now, this moment. And unfortunately, if you can't be happy right now, very unlikely that you're ever going to be eternally happy down the road If you're because you're on this more, again, it's a different kind of treadmill or cycle, but it really aligns quite well, again, with some of what we were talking about earlier. And so this notion, just to put put this in historical context, for most of human history, the focus has been on enough. And that point of sufficiency, harmony, um, you know, in a world of enough, having more than enough is actually excess. It's not desirable. It's like taking a trip and having too much luggage. No one wants that. You want just enough luggage to carry what you need to have, the clothes that you want to wear, have enough for what you want to do. But it also means not Having Knowing you're enough means not too much, but also not too little. So not scarcity. Um, but just, you know, coming full circle on this, the ability to know you're enough and to know that you are enough actually ends up being really freeing and really empowering because we start realizing that when we're always after more, that, that more is typically coming from some someone else or some other script that we didn't write. Because no one that I know of, when they write their own script, no one actively chooses themselves to feel like they're not enough. It's something that we're told, but it's actually completely untrue. Again, both psychology and economics at play.
0: On that note, uh, April, it's been a pleasure to have this opportunity um, for me and for those of us in the audience um thank you so much
1: thank you it has been an absolute delight and joy and honor and i just want to thank you jackie the lsa team and and everyone who joined today
0: and a reminder that your book details can be found on the event listing thank you thank you for listening